Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Please be advised, this episode does have content that some may find distressing. As always, listener discretion is advised and it is not suitable for anyone under the age of 13. In the previous episode, I covered the case of Gordon Cummings, otherwise known as the Blackout Ripper who was hanged by Albert Pierpoint on the 25th of June 1942. He murdered four women in London in the space of a week. Almost a year to the day that Cummings was sentenced to death, Albert Pierpoint returned to the site of the Blackout Ripper's execution at Wandsworth Prison in London to carry out the sentence of another soldier, August Sangrit, who had been caught due to the diligence and thorough work of Detective Edward Greenar and Dr Keith Simpson, whose expertise had also aided in the capture of Gordon Cummings. Fifty miles southwest of the hunting ground of the Blackout Ripper is a 1,400-acre nature reserve known as Hangley Common a place of historical and ecological significance. The common has also bore witness to tragedy. When, on the evening of Wednesday the 27th of July 1932, an aircraft disintegrated mid-air, its wreckage then strewn across the landscape. The small Pusmoth aircraft bearing its three passengers was piloted by 21-year-old Bruce Borsum, accompanied by his mother Emily and a family friend, Count Otto, Erbach Furstenu, who had been visiting from Germany. The plane came down to the southeast of the common in an area known as the Devil's Jumps. It was reported in the Portsmouth Evening News the following day that, quote, in a spinney of young beech trees was the battered fuselage. Six hundred yards to the east of it was a portion of one wing, and nearly a mile still further away was the wing which was seen to tear off in mid-air. 500 yards to the west of the fuselage, a policeman on guard marked the area about 100 square yards in which the bodies were found. A gust of storm force wind might have turned the machine over and put strain on the landing wires, which they could not bear, which in turn could have ripped out the side of the aeroplane, hurtling the occupants to their death. It is, however, practically impossible to say anything definite at this time except that one side of the fuselage seems to have disappeared, end quote. When the bodies were recovered, they were unrecognisable, with the pilot, Bruce, being identified by his pilot's licence. Count Otto was identified by a cigarette case engraved with his name, while it was presumed that the third body 
was Mrs. Emily Borson, based on the fact that she was witnessed boarding the plane with her son. Emily was the American wife of Portsmouth MP Alfred Borson. He had enjoyed an illustrious career as an architect, working on some of New York's most famous skyscrapers. It was while working in the States that he met and married Emily, with whom he would have three sons, including Bruce. The family moved to England, where their children were educated at Eton, while their father Alfred pursued a career in politics. At the age of 21, Bruce had grown into an intelligent, adventurous and ambitious young man who loved to fly and had dreams of breaking records as a pilot. He had also found love, although his father disapproved of the relationship, telling his son that he should secure a career first. Miss Odette Harrard was the young lady Bruce wished to marry, and at the time of his death she had been recovering from scarlet fever in Monte Carlo. The third victim of the crash was Count Otto, who came from an aristocratic and highly influential family in Hanover, Germany. He was a family friend of the Borsums and had been staying with them at the time of his death. The cause of the accident is believed to have occurred as Bruce attempted to turn around due to an approaching storm. There have been suggestions that the plane was struck by lightning, which caused electrical burns on the victims. It also came to light that the Pussmoth aircraft was designed with its wings set above the cabin, and these were supported by V-shaped struts. However, there had been a number of fatal crashes involving the aircraft in which the struts would fail causing the wing to fall off, which witnesses claimed to have occurred to the Borsum's plane. Count Otto's body was returned to Hanover, where he was buried, while Emily and Bruce Borsum were laid to rest in a double grave at Fursley Churchyard, which lies to the east side of Hankley Common, where the plane crashed, and memorial stones had been placed on the common where their bodies were found. This area has also played an important role in military history, as it has been used by the Ministry of Defence, and has seen servicemen from all over the world come to train. During the Second World War, Canadian troops descended on the area, and remnants of their military exercises can still be seen today in the form of the Atlantic Wall. The wall is made of reinforced concrete and is divided into two sections with a gap where a steel gate once stood. The structure itself stands roughly 3 metres high, 3.5 metres wide and 100 metres long. Now a crumbling moss-ridden expanse, it once formed a key part of the Allies' offensive against the Germans. Its construction came about when it was learned that Hitler had commenced the building of sea defences that spanned from Norway to Spain, with the aim of preventing Allied troops from invading Nazi-occupied territories. This massive building project was known as the Atlantic Wall, and after sending grading parties to assess its scale and construction, it was decided a replica would be built in the Surrey countryside by Canadian troops on which tactics could be devised on how to breach these massive defences and allow troops to train in preparation for service on the front line. Construction began in 1943, when the wall still stands today, as a reminder of the lengths the Allied forces went in order to secure victory. To this day, soldiers train on the common, walking in the footsteps of the brave heroes who came before them. The common is also a nature reserve, home to hundreds of species of flora and fauna, and as such is considered an area of special scientific interest, as well as a protected conservation area. The 1400-acre common is sporadically populated by woodland, 
with sandy footpaths cutting through vast expanses of rolling mounds covered in gorse and heather. It was beneath one of these heather-coated mounds, in an area known as Houndown Woods, that a body was found on the 7th of October 1942. It was a warmer than average day, although a bitter wind whipped through the air as the two Royal Marines proceeded across the common, beneath an overcast sky. The two men were participating in a training exercise as they clambered up one of the many mounds of earth that had been constructed to create a rugged terrain for tanks to operate. Reaching the crest of the mound, they noted the fading remnants of heather that had flourished during the summer months, now turning to twig as the colder weather set in. However, the ground around these declining plants appeared to have been recently disturbed, perhaps by the tracks of a tank, which had not only churned up the soil, but had uncovered what the men recognised as a human arm. Upon closer inspection, they observed that the limb was missing the flesh from two of the fingers and a thumb, suggesting that the remains had been preyed upon by scavenging animals. And not far from the arm, the two marines realised that there was also a human foot protruding from the soil. The discovery was reported to their commanding officers, and unsure whether this would be a military or a civilian issue, they in turn contacted their headquarters for clarification, meaning that several hours passed before the first police officers arrived on scene. The following day, Detective Greenaw of Scotland Yard arrived at the crime scene. He had developed a formidable reputation as a conscientious and methodical man who had been responsible for the apprehension of Gordon Cummins. As the soil was slowly removed from the body, green and white fabric began to emerge, and the tattered remnants of a summer dress with a lace collar took shape. The body lay face down, with the left arm resting beneath the chest, while the right arm, which had been protruding from the soil, was stretched out above where the head should have been. For all that remained of it were small pieces of hair, scalp, and a multitude of bone fragments, which were believed to be the skull. Where the neck should have been was a knotted headscarf, and below this the majority of the chest and abdomen had been consumed by what the Home Office pathologist Dr Simpson referred to as a seething mass of maggots. An initial examination of the body at the scene yielded a number of clues. The deceased was still wearing undergarments which appeared to have been undisturbed, suggesting that the individual had not been the victim of a sexual assault. It was also determined that the headscarf was too loose to have been used for strangulation. Furthermore, it was speculated that due to the outstretched position of the right arm, scrapes upon the right ankle and corresponding tears in the woollen ankle socks, that the body had been dragged to the spot where it had been found, and had been lying there for between five to seven weeks. As for the cause of death, the pathologist initially speculated that the fragmented state of the skull suggested that the victim had suffered a violent blow to the head, resulting in death. However, only a full autopsy would help to confirm this, and hopefully assist in identifying the victim. The body was transported to Guy's Hospital in London, where pathologist Dr Simpson conducted a thorough examination, through which he was able to ascertain that the victim was a Caucasian female in her late teens or early twenties. She was approximately 5 foot 4 inches tall, and from the hair recovered from the scalp fragments, Dr Simpson surmised that her naturally brown hair had been bleached blonde within weeks of her death. The doctor painstakingly wired together the 38 fragments of bone to reconstruct the skull, 
allowing him to determine that the victim had received a blow to the rear of the head, creating a fracture measuring five inches long and one and a half inches wide. In conjunction with this wound was a fracture to the right cheekbone. Given the angle of the blow, Dr Simpson suggested that the victim had been lying face down when she had been struck about the head by a blunt object. This wound would have rendered her unconscious and he estimated that she would have died shortly afterwards. Further examination revealed that this was not the only injury the victim had endured. In the front of the skull, there were three wounds located around the left temple, which were round in form and countersunk, consistent with being stabbed with a sharp blade. From these wounds, the pathologist determined that the perpetrator was lightly right-handed and suggested that when the attack first started, the victim had been facing her assailant. A broken jawbone with three loose teeth was also examined, and although he couldn't be certain, Dr Simpson believed this damage was consistent with the individual having suffered a fall, during which she had injured her face. Despite most of the torso having been consumed, or in advanced decomposition, the pathologist was able to find marks on the right arm and hand which were identified as defensive wounds. The most notable feature of these injuries regarded the manner in which the skin had been pulled outwards as the knife was extracted, leading Dr Simpson to conclude that the blade used had a hooked end. He also determined that all of the knife wounds had been inflicted prior to the victim's death. In concluding the autopsy, Dr Simpson provided his theory on what had occurred during the attack, with him suggesting that the assault had started while the victim had been stood facing the perpetrator, who had attacked her with a knife, forcing her to use her arms to protect herself. At some point, the victim had managed to escape her attacker, while perhaps due to the injuries to her head or the uneven terrain, she had lost her footing and had fallen, resulting in their broken jaw and dislodged teeth. The pathologist believed that it is while the victim was lying down, after the fall that her attacker had inflicted the fatal blow to the back of her skull. Having ended the young woman's life, the killer had then dragged the body by the right arm to the burial site, moving the corpse over rough terrain, causing tears to her clothing and abrasions to her skin, particularly on her right leg. However, Dr Simpson suggested that the notable presence of maggots was indicative of the body having been unburied for at least 24 hours. He also estimated that the insect infestation and state of decomposition placed the time of death as occurring around the beginning to the middle of September. The autopsy helped to determine how the victim died, but despite being able to produce a rough description of the individual, Nothing else found on or in the immediate vicinity of the body helped to identify her. Given that Dr Simpson believed that the body had been dragged to the location, it was theorised that the young woman had been killed somewhere else on the common, and so this vast area became the focus of the police search. A team of roughly 60 police officers meticulously conducted a fingertip search of the area, radiating out from the disposal site and five days after the body had been found, they began to unearth key pieces of evidence. They came across a pair of wedge shoes, which lay about 30 yards apart. The sole of one of the shoes had been torn off, and given their proximity to the burial site, it was suggested that they had slipped off the victim's feet as her body was being dragged by the perpetrator. 
Beyond this, roughly 350 yards from where the body had been buried, close to the banks of a small stream that meandered through the undergrowth, at the foot of a steep tree-covered slope, the search team came across a branch from a birch tree, which appeared to have been sharpened at both ends, and upon closer inspection there appeared to be strands of human hair caught up in the bark. Close by, concealed in the grass, an officer found a bone fragment, which was later found to form part of the victim's skull. Roughly sixteen yards away from this discovery, and on the banks of the stream, the presence of a tripwire was noted. This had likely been set up in order to form part of military training. However, it was taken into consideration that this may have been what had resulted in the unidentified female's fall, a thought that Dr Simpson agreed with by adding that an impact with the rough terrain alongside the stream could have caused the broken jaw and dislodged her teeth, one of which had also been found in the vicinity. As the officers continued on up the wooded incline, they found a silver crucifix that had once formed part of a necklace, and at the crest of the hill, where it would later be speculated that the assault had begun, officers found several items, including what appeared to be part of a broken wicker basket, a purse and a handbag. Inside the discarded bag was a rosary, some soap and a small elephant charm, but nothing that could help to identify the deceased woman. Also scattered about the area were pieces of paper, too weathered and water-damaged to be read clearly. These fragile parchments were carefully collected and sent to the forensic laboratory at Scotland Yard, along with the torn corner of what appeared to be a national registration card. Unfortunately, the small fragment was not enough to reveal who the victim was without further investigation. At this point, the police knew more about how the woman had died than they did about who she was when she was alive. All they knew for certain was that she was probably in her late teens, five foot four inches tall, and wore her naturally brown hair in a bleached blonde bob. Despite circulating this description, no one seemed to recognise her, leading to speculation that she wasn't from the area. However, it was clear that the woman had been murdered. Unfortunately, given the location, the pool of suspects were vast. Thousands of soldiers passed through the area to undergo training, some staying for a couple of weeks, others for months. But the chances that the killer was now potentially hundreds of miles away was very high, only adding to the complexity of the case. The forensic team at Scotland Yard worked hard to decipher the few clues that could potentially lead to the identity of the victim, with a focus falling on the portion of the National Registration Card. With the limited information this provided, they were able to narrow down the office that had issued the card and by cross-examining the description of the victim with the records held at the office, they identified one possible individual, although this wasn't definitive. Two different sources could help to corroborate this conclusion. Detective Greenaw approached a Miss Edith Watts who lived in Tunbridge Wells, and upon seeing the elephant charm, crucifix and rosary, she confirmed that they were similar to items that belonged to her 19-year-old daughter, Joan Pearl Wolfe. Born on the 11th of March 1923 in the Kent town of Tunbridge Wells, Joan was the daughter of Edith and her husband Charles Wolfe. The little girl's early years were marked by the devastating loss of her father when Joan was just seven years old. Within a year of Charles's death, Edith would remarry a man called Leslie Wood, who was an intelligent man with a talent for chess. 
He was also seen as eccentric by the locals, and behind closed doors he suffered from insomnia and mental health issues, which sometimes manifested as being paranoid and hostile. As was suspected by the presence of the rosary and crucifix, John was educated at a Catholic school, which had been funded by a wealthy auntie. She proved to be a very keen student who became proficient in French, and demonstrated a pious and strongly moral character. Just before her 16th birthday, Joan became engaged to a local man, who came from a wealthy family in the area. Seeing that this individual cared for her daughter and could provide Joan with financial security, Edith approved of the engagement. However, Joan's joy would be short-lived. Only nine years after her father had passed away, she would experience another traumatic loss, which would send her life into a downward spiral. The teenager had finished school one August afternoon in 1939 and had walked into the house to find the kitchen door closed. Nothing could prepare her for what lay beyond the door. As she pushed it open, the smell of gas assaulted her senses. Taking a moment to focus, her eyes descended on a lifeless figure lying upon the cold, tiled floor. Her eccentric and troubled stepfather, Leslie, had taken his own life. Shortly after this, Joan disappeared from the family home, and Edith went to the police to report her missing. It would be a month before the 16-year-old would return, having been located in the town of Aldershot, from where her future mother-in-law collected her and brought her home. Joan did not linger in Tunbridge Wells for long, and with the outbreak of the Second World War, the troubled teenager called off her engagement and headed to London, where she sought employment at an aircraft factory. Unbeknownst to her mother, this job lasted less than a month, beginning a pattern of Joan's many short-lived job roles. Although it is impossible to know why Joan made the choices she did, her life over the next couple of years was one of promiscuity and recklessness, as she conducted numerous short-lived affairs with soldiers. Joan was described as immature and naive, seemingly seeking love and perhaps security struggling to balance this with her religious convictions. She still tried to cling to her pious beliefs, and it was noted that she never smoked, consumed alcohol, nor did she utter any profanities, always maintaining a gentle and well-spoken manner. Despite grieving the death of two husbands, Edith's love for John never wavered, as she continued to provide her daughter with affection and stability, but her efforts were scuppered by John's increasingly concerning behaviour, which began to put a strain on their relationship. Numerous letters between the mother and daughter demonstrated Edith's desperate attempt to help Joan, with many of the letters pleading with the teenager to return home, and to lead a more respectable life. These correspondences became sporadic, and when John did venture back home, she would only linger briefly before disappearing once more. Perhaps part of the reason that Joan did not wish to return home stemmed from the fact that in 1942, just three years after the death of her second husband, her mother remarried a man called Charles Watts. Of course, this is purely speculation, but for a girl who had already suffered the loss of two father figures, this new addition to the family may not have been easy for the teenager to accept. One of the final letters that Edith sent to Joan was written in May of 1942, four months prior to the latter's death. In this correspondence, Edith wrote that she was, quote, finished with you. I have been more than fair to you, 
forgiven you for things no other mother would have done. You said something about repaying me for all I have done for you. John, I shall be paid in full the day you come and truthfully say, Mum, I am going to be a good girl. John, that will be the happiest day of my life. Unfortunately, that day would never arrive. As the seemingly lost girl continued her wanderings, her job roles fleeting and her accommodations varying from cheap lodging houses to finding shelter in derelict buildings and woodlands. In the village of Fursley, which is found to the east of Hankley Common, where the body was discovered, an elderly lady called Kate Hater resided. She took pity on Joan and provided the teenager with food, clean clothes and shelter. Kate also recalled that she had seen John interacting with a number of soldiers around the area. It was also come to light that by July 1942, the 19-year-old had become engaged to a Canadian officer called Francis Hearn. Once again, Joan was left heartbroken when on the 15th of July, her fiancé returned to Canada. The reliable identification provided by the mother was reinforced by the recollection of Superintendent Richard Webb who had encountered Joan Wolfe in July and August of 1942, when she was brought to the police station after being found sleeping rough. He recalled that on both occasions the girl had been wearing the same green and white dress, and her general description matched that of the deceased. He was also able to connect Joan to the Canadian training camp which was located on Hankley Common, as he had noted that the girl had a boyfriend who was stationed there. This information was reinforced by the deciphering of the water-damaged paperwork found at the crime scene, amongst which was discovered a document issued to Canadian servicemen who were seeking permission to marry, and a letter written by John addressed to an officer by the name of August Sangrit. The contents of the note informed the cadet that she was with child and spoke of her hopes of marrying him. Joan had met August Sangreet on the 17th of July 1942 while in a pub in the village of Godalming. It was the day after her fiancé, Francis Hearn, had returned to Canada. The heartbroken teenager entered the pub alone and ordered a glass of lemonade from the bar. This caught Sangreet's attention. He recalled later that he watched as the scruffy-looking girl with the sad expression sat in a seat nearby. He inquired whether she wanted something stronger to drink to which she told him she didn't drink anything stronger. He claimed he found himself intrigued by the solitary young woman, and the two quickly struck up a conversation, which led to them leaving the pub together. A charming soldier escorted the 19-year-old through a dark and desolate park, until they reached a field close to where the River Wye cut a course. It was here, in the still night, with the gentle rumbling of the river filling the warm summer air, that John and August first made love. The pair parted ways, but they made arrangements to meet up again, and as would become a common occurrence throughout their relationship, John didn't show up. However, four days later, August would encounter the teenager outside a fish and chip shop in Godelming, where she was in the company of another soldier with whom she was on a date. During an exchange between the trio, John became visibly upset when her date suggested that the two men should decide who gets her by tossing a coin. John, however, made the decision for them, opting to stay with August. The other soldier walked away, but the incident had been witnessed by a police officer, who briefly detained John and August in order to establish what had occurred. Satisfied with their explanation, no further action was taken. 
August and John headed back to a section of Hankley Common, which lay close to Whitley Camp, where the Canadian soldier was stationed. Here August learned that John was living a nomadic lifestyle and had nowhere to stay. Being from a Cree Indian tribe, he had learned how to construct an abode from materials found in nature, and so he constructed a shelter, which he described as being, quote, a little shack with limbs and stuff. He stayed with the teenager that night in the new shelter, and the following morning he gave John a picture of himself and agreed to meet her again that night. And over the following days he helped her finish the wigwam, bringing John blankets and food from the army camp. The pair would meet more frequently over the following days, although John didn't always show up. August was however prepared to break the rules in order to spend time with her, with them meeting up at 7pm and him returning to the base in order to be present for the evening roll call at 10pm before sneaking back out to rejoin his lover in the makeshift hut. Just a week after the couple had met, John had collapsed whilst out in the town of Guildford, causing her to be admitted to hospital. On the 23rd of July, the 19-year-old sent August a letter advising him of her circumstances, which read as follows. My dear August, Well, my dear, I hope I am forgiven for not turning up to see you last night, but I was in the police station five hours and they did not help me. I was walking along the road and suddenly came over queer. I fainted for the first time in my life. They brought me to the hospital here. They are going to examine me. I shall know whether I am all right or not then. I hope you will come and see me, as I really want to see you, and being in bed all day is awful. You can come any night between 6 to 7 p.m. and Sunday afternoon. Please try and come. I have your picture on the locker beside me. The nurses know you are my boyfriend. They told me to tell you to come and see me. You have to tell them my name and ask for emergency ward. Well, hoping to see you soon. I will say au revoir. God bless you, love John. As requested, August came to the hospital on the Sunday, but he was denied entry due to him arriving outside of visiting hours. Whether he left her a message or not, his absence caused John to write to him once more, quote, My dear August, I hope you are well, as I have not seen or heard from you. It is so very lonely here without anyone to speak to, and there is so much I want to tell you. They are going to try and get me somewhere to stay in Gedelming, or, if this is not possible, in Guildford. Just one week has passed since I have known you, dear. It seems such a long time. I hope you will try and come and see me in the hospital, as I want to tell you when I can come out, because someone will have to meet me, and you are all I have in the world. Of course, if you don't want to come, I shall understand. August, I am sure... I shall never understand men. I do not know enough about them, but I can live and learn. Anyway, I am pretty sure we are going to have a tiny wee one. Maybe that is why you do not want to come and see me, because you think that... I hope not anyway, but dear, I would not blame you one little bit if you did not want to marry me because I really am too young and too old-fashioned to be married. I regret what we did now, but it's too late, for I still say it is wicked. I guess you think I am silly and I suppose I am. And remember I was brought up in a strict Catholic school. We were taught to have a baby before you were married was a sin. I do not know anything about babies. Well, I suppose I shall have to close this letter now. So au revoir, Daddy. God bless you. Always dear, Joan.
When John's body was found, the extensive decomposition meant that proving she was with child was impossible. However, her claim that August was the father was unlikely, given that they had only known each other for just over a week. If she was pregnant, the father was probably her fiancé, Francis Hearn, who had returned to Canada the day prior to John meeting August. Given what has been stated regarding the teenager being naive, it is possible that she was not knowledgeable about reproduction and gestation periods, and thus genuinely believed that August could have been the father. On the 28th of July, the couple were reunited when John was released from the hospital, and they continued their relationship. The teenager sought employment at a local factory. However, this, like her previous roles, was short-lived, with her being dismissed three days after starting due to poor timekeeping. At this time, John had also written a letter to her mother, requesting permission to come and visit, which suggests how strained the relationship had become. However, the 19-year-old's letter went unanswered, and the young girl instead headed off to London in the hopes of finding employment but within a couple of days she returned to her temporary shelter on Hankley Common. By mid-August, the couple's shelter had been discovered, and the pair were caught by the military police. Sangreet was issued a warning, and ordered to dismantle the structure, while John was ordered to leave the area immediately, as it was designated military land, where civilians were prohibited. August was not prepared to be parted from John, and having scoured the nearby village of Whitley for accommodation and failing, he constructed a second hut just 800 yards from the original in order for them to continue their affair. But this too would be discovered. According to Sangreet, the couple had only resided there for a couple of days before the military police came across the second shelter. This time, August was detained, and as a civilian, Joan was taken to the police station in Godalming where the officer concerned for her well-being took her to Guildford Hospital, where she was admitted in a secure ward. On the 24th of August, having been arrested the previous night, August Sangrit was charged with the offence of concealing a civilian within close proximity to the barracks. He notified his commanding officer that he intended to marry Joan. Having spoken of his intentions, Sangrit was advised that Joan was classed as a minor, and as such, he would need to seek permission from her family, and also from the Canadian government in order to go through with the union. With regards to the letter, Sangreet was issued with a formal marriage application form, which, with him being illiterate, he would need to seek assistance to fill it in. Having been reprimanded for his indiscretion, Sangreet visited John in the secure ward at the hospital, where, according to Sangreet, the teenager told him the doctors could not confirm her pregnancy. Nine days after being admitted to the hospital, John requested a day pass in order to go and see a film and buy some new clothes. But the 19-year-old failed to return to the ward that evening, and after sleeping rough at the railway station, she headed back to Hankley Common to locate Sangreet. With her shelter having been dismantled and unable to find anywhere else to stay, John settled in the derelict remains of Fursley Cricket Pavilion, and once again her lover provided her with blankets and food he had acquired from the barracks. During the day she would linger in the abandoned shell, writing letters and poems, filled with romantic notions, naive sentiments, and references to scripture, alongside drawings in which she depicted her idealised future as Sangreet's wife. 
Evidence of her hopes were also found upon the walls of the old pavilion, where she had written, quote, J. Wolfe, now Mrs. Sangreet, England, September the 9th, 1942. It is evident from these etchings that she clung to this potential future, and according to Sangreet, the pair spent two weeks she dwelt in the pavilion discussing their plans. When he could not meet with John, the pair would correspond through letters, which due to August being illiterate, he relied on Sergeant Charles Hicks at the barracks to read them to him. Charles would later recall the letters being written by someone who seemed lonely and naive, yet also filled with hope. He also revealed that in a number of letters, John had voiced her concerns regarding August believing she had been unfaithful to him, which she had responded to in one letter, quote, You know I am in a safe place now, and you will not be able to accuse me of going out with other officers. I have never done it since I have known you anyway, but you are so damn jealous you think it. But still, we will forget all that now, and look forward to the future when we are married. As the middle of September approached, and with John unable to hold down a job, she resorted to selling blackberries, which she and August had gathered, and used the money to begin preparing for the new arrival, spending her days in the cricket pavilion, knitting baby clothes. The last known sighting of the 19-year-old was on Sunday the 13th of September, when she was witnessed walking with a soldier who had black hair and a dark complexion. After this, no one could recall seeing the nomadic girl loitering around the area. In the following weeks, August made a number of comments regarding John's absence, within claiming that she had taken his water bottle and his knife. Different people were told conflicting stories about her whereabouts, with some being told that the teenager had ended their engagement and had headed back home to Tunbridge Wells, while others were advised that John had once again been admitted to hospital. By the 21st of September, August approached his commanding officer regarding John's disappearance and requested help to locate her. He explained that the pair had been involved in an argument regarding Sangreet's reluctance to get married and he had become concerned for her well-being. When asked why it had taken him a week to report his concerns, August replied, quote, If she should be found and anything has happened to her, I don't want to be mixed up in it. However, whatever concern August claimed he had for John, it did not prevent him from dating other women, and even arranging to meet a woman in Scotland during his upcoming authorised leave. This affair was known about due to other officers having to read and write August's correspondences, and on one occasion an officer inquired why Sangreet was planning on dating another woman when he was engaged to John, to which the Canadian replied, She'll never find out. The police had a number of pieces of circumstantial evidence to link the 29-year-old Sangreet to John's murder, including the marriage request form and the letters between the pair. They lacked anything conclusive that would allow them to charge him. This was until the 27th of November 1942, when a knife was discovered in a wastewater pipe at the barracks. Its hooked tip was consistent with the wounds discovered on John's body and the blade was similar to one Sangreet had been known to possess. There was, however, one issue. Sangreet was no longer in the area, having been sent to an army base in Aldershot, ten miles north of Hankley Common. And while there, he had been admitted to hospital, therefore it was not until the 6th of December that Detective Greeno was able to question the prime suspect. When August Sangreet was asked about his relationship with John Wolfe, 
He provided the officer with a highly detailed statement which took over five days to make, explaining that he had last seen John on the morning of the 14th of September, having spent the previous night with her at the cricket pavilion. He then headed back to the army base, but intended to see her that evening. They had discussed John seeking lodgings at Kate Hater's cottage, where she had resided in July prior to meeting Sangreet. That night he had gone to a pub with a fellow soldier called Joseph Wells, yet he returned to the cricket pavilion twice to find that John wasn't there. He expressed his concerns to his friend when he returned to the pub, and on the following day August visited Kate Hater's cottage, hoping to find the 19-year-old, but the occupant advised that she hadn't seen John. Hoping that his lover would appear at the cottage at some point, August left some of John's items with Kate, including the knitted baby clothes. During the interview, he willingly showed the detective the locations that he and John had frequented. But when he was asked to approach the area where John's remains had been found, August was reluctant to follow the officer, who proceeded to ask whether the Canadian was afraid of ghosts, to which Sangreet replied, yes. When the soldier was later asked if he had caused John's death, he replied, quote, no, sir, I did not do it. I guess somebody did it and I shall have to take the rap. To determine whether there was sufficient evidence to take the case before a jury, a committal hearing was held in January 1943, during which a number of witnesses testified regarding the pair's relationship, Sangreet's inconsistent stories about her disappearance, and his ownership of a knife similar to the murder weapon. Prosecutor Mr Paling opened by describing John's nomadic lifestyle, stating she was a wayward child, who had left home on numerous occasions and was known to fraternise with soldiers. He described how August had constructed a makeshift shack out of branches for John to live in, and that when they had been discovered by military police, they had been demolished. However, it was suggested that the knife used to create these hooks was also the one that had caused the victim's stab wounds. Mr Paling alluded to the fact that John believed she was pregnant and that she and Sangreet had discussed getting married hence the marriage permission form that had been found close to the burial site. The prosecutor also presented the large branch that had been discovered with blood and hair on it, which was theorised had caused a large fracture to the rear of John's skull. Mr Paling stated, quote, The suggestion is that Sangreet lived with this girl and that she was pregnant by him, that she requested early marriage and that at that time he was communicating with another woman and John became a nuisance. They possibly had a quarrel. He took her into the woods. She ran away after trying to defend herself. He struck her with his cudgel and subsequently endeavoured to conceal his crime by burying the body. Had the body been there much longer, it would have disappeared entirely. Mr Paling went on to add that John's skull had been shattered into roughly 30 pieces, which had been painstakingly pieced together and upon completion, a hole was found consistent with the wound that could have been inflicted by the branch. The argument was made that John had been struck with the object while lying face down, and that she likely died of shock. Further forensic evidence was presented by Dr Lynch, an analyst from the Home Office, who stated that items belonging to Sangreet, including his uniform and blankets, showed traces of blood on them, although he admitted that this was not conclusive. There were also letters that had been found in August's possession, one of which read, I am pretty sure we're going to have a tiny wee one, 
Maybe this is why you do not want to come and see me. I would not blame you one little bit if you did not want to marry me because I am really too young and old-fashioned to be married. I regret what we did because it is wicked. I hope God forgives me. Remember, I was brought up very strict. We were taught that baby before you were married is a sin. Mr Paling argued that some of these letters should have been in John's possession, with the prosecutor putting forward the suggestion that these had been taken from John's handbag after her murder in an attempt to remove his connection to her. However, Sangreet failed to take all the letters with him, Mr Paling stating, quote, The inference is that Sangreet was with John about, if not at the time, she received her injuries and that he took from her handbag letters which might connect him with the offence, and inadvertently left behind a letter which she had written to him on August the 24th. Mrs Edith Watts, John's mother, was called to testify, and her exchange with Mr Vine for the defence spoke of the state of their relationship, and the strong opinion Edith had regarding her daughter's immoral lifestyle. The mother admitted being dissatisfied with John's behaviour, since the girl was sixteen and a half when she first ran away from home. Mr Vine presented a letter dated May the 4th, 1942, which showed Mrs Watts had been very vocal regarding John's choices. In the letter she wrote, I cannot put any more faith in you, unless you return to that hostel at once. I have finished with you. I have been more than fair to you, forgiving you for things no other mother would have done. If you have any respect for me and yourself, for God's sake, go get cured and make an effort to be a good girl. I will do anything for you, if you will only help yourself. When you say I am going to be a good girl, that will be the happiest day of my life. Utter remorse is the worst thing in the world to bear. When I am dead, you will think about all of this, and wish you had been a better girl. Try hard to alter. Whatever you decide to do, think well before you do it. Love, Mum. At the conclusion of the committal hearing, it was determined that there was sufficient evidence to take the case to trial, which commenced at Surrey County Hall on Wednesday the 24th of February 1943, with Justice McNaughton presiding. On the first day, Mr Eric Neave presented the opening statement for the prosecution. He opened by describing John as a camp follower who was influenced by religion, before continuing to highlight the relationship between the teenager and the man accused of her murder, using letters between the couple to reinforce his argument, telling the jury that, quote, I think you will have no trouble in coming to the conclusion that this man agreed to marry the girl. He explained how August Sangreed had constructed the two shelters on Hankley Common, in which John had resided until they were discovered by military police. Mr Neve suggested to the jury that these wooden structures had been constructed using the same knife that had been used to murder John, and that the accused had later attempted to conceal a black-handled knife with a hooked point in the waste pipe at Whitley Barracks, a knife which experts would testify matched the stab wounds on the victim's body. He then moved on to show the jury the wooden stake, which under examination had been found to have hairs embedded in it, identical in colour and texture to John's. Mr Neath also drew the jury's attention to the area of the stake, which perfectly fitted into the hole that had been made in the deceased girl's skull. The prosecutor also advised that the jury would also learn that bloodstains had been found on August Sangreet's trousers, and on a blanket, 
to which Dr. Lynch would clarify that these stains lined up with the wounds on John's body, suggesting that her body had been wrapped in the blanket. Returning to 29-year-old August Sangreet's relationship with the 19-year-old John, and his statements regarding the last time he saw the teenager, Mr. Neve read aloud that the accused alleged he had last seen John on the 14th of September, and that her final words to him were, quote, Goodbye, this is the last time I may see you. When asked what she meant by this, the defendant told officers that John had stated that she wanted to die. Mr. Neve then told the jury that they would hear the testimony of various witnesses, who would vouch for August's actions and words in the weeks after John's disappearance, and that their testimony will highlight the contradictions in the defendant's story. Ending his opening statement, Mr. Neve told the jury that the prosecution could prove beyond reasonable doubt that the defendant was the man responsible for the death of John Wolfe. The jury were then addressed by Linton Thorpe, who was acting in August's defence. He countered the prosecution's arguments, particularly with regards to the knife. Mr. Forbes stated that his client had never possessed the knife, and that the one submitted into evidence was actually issued by the British Army, and as such, with Sangreet being a Canadian officer, he would not have been given one. Mr. Forbes proceeded by drawing attention to the fact that another knife had been found not far from where the body had been buried. However, this was discarded by a police officer, who deemed the item to be insignificant. The knife was never relocated and as such could not be compared with the wounds on John's body. Referring to August and John's relationship, Mr Thorpe highlighted the numerous letters between the pair, and the manner in which the defendant had taken care of the 19-year-old by providing her with food, shelter and blankets. When she disappeared, August had made an attempt to find her. Finally, Mr Forbes stated that John was a nomadic and wayward individual who had been known to have liaisons with various soldiers, of which there were thousands that passed through the Hankley Common area and the prosecution could not prove that it was not one of those officers that had ended John's life. Over the next two days, over 20 witnesses took to the stand to testify. The first to be called was August's commanding officer, Sergeant Harold Wade who recalled that in the conversations with the defendant it was very difficult to read his thoughts, describing Sangreet as having a good poker face. The sergeant proceeded to state that he had been made aware of John's disappearance when the accused reported it to him on the 21st of September 1942, during which August had advised that the pair had quarrelled about getting married. Wade claimed that he advised the soldier to forget about the girl and move on, but August responded, that should something happen to John, he did not wish to be involved in the matter. When Corporal Robert Talbot and Sergeant Charles Hicks took to the stand, they testified that they had assisted the illiterate August in reading and writing his correspondences. Corporal Talbot would tell the jury that in October of 1942 he had inquired as to why Sangreed had not married John to which the accused claimed that he did not want to get married in Britain, and that he was in communication with a girl in Scotland and another in Canada, suggesting that he had moved on from John. Aside from testifying to aiding August in communication, Sergeant Charles Hicks also stated that he was advised by the defendant on the 27th of September that John had disappeared. That was roughly two weeks after August claimed he last saw her. The prosecution then called upon Raymond Dedman, 
an American soldier who testified regarding what he perceived as August's possessive nature. The officer stated that having become acquainted with John at the beginning of September, he recalled an encounter with August when Raymond was walking with John across Hankley Common. According to the witness, the accused approached them in an angry and jealous manner before proceeding to chastise the visibly nervous John for leaving the shelter without his permission. Having established the relationship between John and August and presenting the defendant as a man who was unfaithful and possessive, prosecution moved on to witnesses who testified regarding the knife, which was believed to have been used during the murder. The most damning of these testimonies came from Corporal Thomas Harding, who stated that he had given the knife to Sangreet on the 26th of August 1942, something the accused would deny when he took to the stand. August would claim that he never possessed the knife and that the one he used to construct the shelter had belonged to Joan, who had been given the knife by her former fiancé, Francis Hearn. Another witness, Private Joseph Arsenault, stated he had encountered August, who was alone in the camp washroom, where he appeared to be trying to remove stains from his trousers. However, during the defence's cross-examination, the private was unable to give a definitive date as to when this had occurred. To strengthen this last testimony, Home Office analyst Dr Lynch provided his expertise, stating that the trousers, a blanket and a water bottle all showed traces of blood. But under cross-examination, he had to admit that there was no way to determine whether the blood was animal or human. Although he did dispel the defence's supposition that the blood may have been caused by the wearer, itching due to a lice infestation. Dr Lynch advised that the staining was too extensive for this, in his opinion. Pathologist Dr Simpson took the unprecedented step of introducing the victim's skull into the courtroom. This was a first in British legal history, and was met with objections from Mr Fort for the defence. This submission allowed the pathologist to visually demonstrate that the injuries inflicted to the skull were consistent with the knife and the branch, and that the victim had been attacked by an individual who was right-handed. He concluded by stating he was unable to confirm that the victim had been pregnant at the time of her death, due to the extensive decomposition of her remains. The most anticipated moment of the trial came when August Sangrit took to the stand. His questioning would last for two days, with him providing extensive details regarding his relationship with Joan Wolfe. Under questioning from his defender, Mr Forbes, the following exchange occurred. Mr Forbes, did you want to get married to Joan? Sangreet, yes I did. She had to get word from her mother first and I had to get permission from the Canadian government. Mr Forbes, did you at any time refuse to marry Joan? Sangreet responded, no. The defence returned. From that day being the 13th of September 1942 to this, have you ever seen Joan again? Sangreet responded, no sir, never. During his questioning, August admitted that the couple had quarrelled regarding him asking John to write a letter to a woman in Canada. He went on to state, quote, John did not like that very much. She said, you can't love two. I told her I was not in love with the one in Canada. He then claimed that John had stated that she didn't believe he cared about her and had no intention of marrying her, to which he replied, quote, if I was not going to marry you, I would not live with you like this. He claimed that this statement resulted in the pair having a quarrel, but insisted it was not a row. 
suggesting that it was more of a heated conversation as opposed to a violent argument. The defence continued their questioning by asking, quote, Did you ever stab her with a knife? Did you ever smash her on the head with a hedge stake? August denied hurting Joan. Prosecutor Mr Neve then began cross-examination. He would attempt to undermine August's integrity by pinpointing his inconsistent statements and the seeming contradictions that he loved Joan while corresponding with other women. Mr Neve questioned August regarding a letter he had asked another soldier to write, which was addressed to a woman in Scotland. The accused admitted that this had occurred, leading Mr Neve to inquire whether it had been a love letter. Sangreet responded, not exactly, leading to the following exchange. Mr Neve stated, you do realise what I am putting to you. This girl was beginning to get a bit of a nuisance, and you were prepared to shake her off, if you could. Sangreet responded, what for? Mr Neve replied, so that you might be free to carry on with this other woman at Glasgow, or anywhere else you wanted. Oh no, sir, said Sangreet. The prosecutor ended his questioning by asking, You cannot think of anybody who would have murdered her. To which August responded, I would like to answer that question, but I cannot. In closing, the prosecution admitted that the case was circumstantial, but inferred that all the evidence and testimonies strongly suggested that August Sangreed had been the perpetrator. Defence disputed that claim, emphasising that everything they had heard and seen did not provide concrete proof that the accused was the murderer, and again insinuated that the killer could be one of a thousand soldiers who had resided at the barracks. Having spent five days listening to both sides, the jury were then given their instructions by Judge McNaughton, who told them, quote, a critical fact was the finding of a black-handled knife in the drain of a guardroom washhouse, alleged to have been given to Sangreet. That knife had a curious curved blade. Sangreet had denied that that knife had been handed to him. You are satisfied that the knife handed to Sangreet was the same knife as the one found in the drain. Then you may think it was Sangreet who put the knife in the drain. He continued, That the girl was murdered is not in dispute. That she was murdered by some man is also quite plain. And the only question you have to determine is, have the Crown satisfied you beyond all real doubt that the prisoner, August Sangreet, is the man who murdered her? I can only conclude by saying what I said at the beginning. When dealing with a case of circumstantial evidence, you must be satisfied beyond all doubt before you find the prisoner guilty. If you come to the conclusion that, on the facts as proved to you, no real doubt is left in your mind that his was the hand which slew this unhappy girl, then you will convict him. The jury were then dismissed to deliberate, and they opted to take with them the skull and the alleged murder weapons. Just two hours later they returned with their verdict. Rising to address the court, the judge delivered the sentence, stating, August Sangrit, the jury have found that it was you who murdered Joan Wolfe, and none who heard the evidence can doubt the justice of the verdict. They have accompanied it with a strong recommendation for mercy, and that will be forwarded to the proper quarter. It only remains for me to pronounce the sentence prescribed by law. The sentence of the court is that you be taken from here to the place from whence you came, and from there to a place of lawful execution, and that there you be hanged by the neck until you are dead and that your body afterwards be buried within the precinct of the prison, 
in which you shall have been last confined, and may the Lord have mercy on your soul. Having been sentenced to death, August Sangrit took the unusual step of appealing his conviction without advising his counsel first. This meant he was unable to challenge any aspect of the trial. He instead used his appeal purely to protest his innocence. His appeal was heard and rejected on 13th of April 1943, and at 9am on the 29th of April 1943, at Wandsworth Prison, he would briefly meet Albert Pierpoint, his executioner, as the trap door fell beneath his feet. It would emerge 20 years later through the memoirs of Inspector Edward Greenall that the interviews that had been carried out with Sangreet at Godalming Police Station had been conducted illegally, as he had been held for five days without being formally charged. This action could have jeopardised the entire case. However, it was never raised by the Defence Counsel prior to the trial or at Sangreet's appeal. Inspector Greenall was certain that Sangreet was the guilty party and he revealed that August had confessed to the crime prior to his execution. Inspector Greenor went on to state what he believed was the motive for murder, which he wrote in his memoirs in the 1960s, quote, I'd interviewed thousands of people in this case, and 74 of them went into the witness box. The case was so watertight that, as Assistant Commissioner Sir Norman Kendall said later, Sangreet's appeal against the death sentence was almost a farce. One small doubt remained. Sangreet murdered the girl because she was expecting his child. But was she? Was she expecting anybody's child? The doctors didn't think so on the occasion that the police sent her to the hospital. And when her body was found, it was too late to tell. But this is certain. Sangreet did murder her. He confessed before he died. It is never announced when a murderer confesses. But why not? There are always cranks and crackpots to argue that some wicked policeman has framed some poor fellow. So why make an official secret of the fact that the policeman did his job? Thank you for joining me for today's episode of It's Murder Up North. Next time we explore the crimes of Neville Heath, otherwise known as the Lady Killer. So in the meantime, keep an eye on those shadows. 